So has there ever been a day that you look forward to, right? Maybe there was a lot of anticipation for it, um, a lot of planning. So as a teacher, every year, the first day of school is one of these days. You look forward to it so much. You've had the summer to relax, and then you've taken these two weeks before school officially starts to get your classroom ready and, you know, your copies. And uh, when I used to work in public school, I would try to see how many of the kids' names I could already know, and I would take it to heart and just pray for them. And, of course, the roster would change by the end of the first week, but that would never stop me um, from trying to, you know, just ready for that first day of school. But just as much as a teacher looks forward to the first day of school, <laughs> they also look forward to the last day of school. <laughs> the anticipation is different, but there's still that excitement and there's still that planning of, okay, I got to get everything done. And all these cute things I put up on my classroom, now I have to take them all down and figure out where to store them or if I'm going to keep them or what to do. So that I was just thinking of that, how there's a day that we all look forward to and we can all look forward to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. This phrase appears 24 times in the King, the New King James Version of the Bible, uh, mostly in the prophetic books, right? So it's interesting that this day of the Lord is associated with prophecy in much of the Old Testament. It appears three times in Isaiah. Uh, I like the first reference that it points out there in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12. It reads, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Jeremiah also mentions the day of the Lord as a day of vengeance. Ezekiel mentions it twice, and the day of the Lord is associated with um, someone interceding on behalf of others as well. Joel mentions this phrase, the day of the Lord, Four times, four times, the prophet Joel mentions the day of the Lord. Uh, the last one that's mentioned in that book is Joel 3.14. It reads, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And I love that reminder that whether we look forward to or we dread the day of the Lord, it all comes down to choice. That decision, will you choose to serve and to love and surrender to the Lord? Then you can have great anticipation for the day of the Lord. But those who choose to be proud, like Isaiah was warning us, there will be dread for the day of the Lord. Amos mentions it twice, Obadiah, Zephaniah, and in Zechariah we're told, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. But this phrase is not only reserved for Old Testament prophecy, we also see New Testament writers using the same phrase. 1 Corinthians 5, as well as 2 Corinthians 1, mention the day of the Lord. Paul also writes about this day in 1 Thessalonians 5, saying, You know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. And Peter uses sort of the same idea, and we've looked at that already in the study. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it, and it will be burned up. So, 
the Bible describes this day of the Lord, right? The second coming of Christ, which last week or last time we were together, we uh, sort of looked at the rapture more in depth, right? The time before that, we looked at um, his second coming when he was going to rule and reign. And today we're going to kind of look at them together as the second coming of Christ. I found this outline from uh, R.A. Torrey, one of the resources in Blue Letter Bible, and it really encouraged me. It spoke to me so much. So I'll be referencing a lot of points uh, from this resource that I found. It just encouraged me, and the wording was so sweet that there'll be a lot of points that I'm just going to read verbatim because it's so rich. So the outline is that the second coming of the Lord is personal, it's glorious, and it is imminent, personal, glorious, and imminent. And we're just going to take those three points one at a time and ask ourselves, why? Why is the second coming of Christ personal? Well, let's think about that. Of all the things, the riches, the attributes, the resources, and blessings, right? Stop and think of how much authority God has, his power and his might. He has access to everything and anything, his character, his deity, of all the things we could be left to hold on to in light of the day of the Lord, in light of his coming, what was granted to us? It was his grace. Turn with me quickly to the last book, the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. It's been so sweet to go through this book, right, as we see that the day of the Lord is approaching, and eventually we're going to get to this verse in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And notice verse 21, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. These are the last verses of the last book, describing the final chapter in the history of humanity. John prays Christ's heart for us as we await Christ's coming. May the grace of the Lord be with you. And as we pray, Lord Jesus, come, even so come. We have been entrusted with grace, unto grace. And that's why I believe the second coming of Christ is going to be so personal, because he has committed his grace to us as we await his return. But not only is it personal, it's also glorious. And this, again, has to do with his grace. Turn with me to Romans. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, where we see the glorious grace of our Lord in thinking about the second coming. Beginning in verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace, in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that the tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God 
has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We have access to this faith, right? The faith that he is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that he came, he died on the cross to pay for our sins, but also the faith that he is coming again. And it's in that grace that we stand, rejoicing in the hope of his coming glory. And ladies, as the days get darker, as the difficulties of this life maybe are, are just bearing on you and you see wickedness and evil just running rampant, don't lose sight of that grace. Don't exchange the glory that God has given you for the filth of this world. Um, Pastor Chuck Smith, who started Calvary Chapels, he uh, has a book called Why Grace Changes Everything. And I think this was probably his favorite theme, is grace. He loved to talk about it. He loved the fact that it's the one thing that sets Christianity apart from any other belief, any other worldview, is this idea of grace. That it's all because of what God has done, because of his love for us, that we have any access to faith, any access to these promises. So the coming of, of the Lord, this day of the Lord, is personal because of grace. It's glorious because of grace. But it's also imminent because of grace. Go with me now to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll pick up in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And verse 6. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. In other words, the grace that we experience is only the beginning. God's return, that he's going to send his son to return for us, that he might show us the fullness, the exceeding riches of his grace. Imminence, as it relates to our Lord's return, indicates uncertainty as to time, but a possibility of nearness. It's an uncertainty as to time, but we know that the possibility of nearness is ever true, right? So many times when Jesus would speak about his second coming, he would tell us, you don't know the day of the hour. Watch and pray. Be sober. Be ready, be diligent, because it can happen at any moment. The possibility of nearness is there. And again, I'm so excited to be able to commemorate, to think about the death of our Lord and Savior, to think about his resurrection, the joy, the glory of that. Um, and it's not a coincidence that here we are studying his second coming on the the. Tuesday, right, the week before, we look at these historic, changing, life-changing events that took place. 
And these are some, some points made from the outline I was talking about by Ari Tori. Through the sad and dark hours of the very last night, Christ's thoughts were occupied with his return. In the upper room, when the faithful little band were grouped about him in sorrow for the parting which all vaguely felt was near, he began his farewell words to them with this comforting assurance. John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again. A few hours afterwards, he was in the midst of the shameful scenes of his trial. Mark his answer to the high priest when he calmly acknowledged the claim to be the Christ, the Son of God. Nevertheless, I say unto you, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He did not look like the Messiah at the moment as he stood there with bound hands before his accusers. His appearance seemed to belie his words, but the time would come. The time would come when they would see that his claim was true. This was the vision of his returning glory to the world that was rejecting him now. It shone like a beacon upon his soul. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And at his ascension, the same truth was brought up again to the minds of the disciples as they stood gazing in wonder towards the place where the Lord had disappeared from their view. Two angels were sent to remind them of his return. This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, shall come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. It was with this thought that the disciples went back to Jerusalem with joy. It was very clear, therefore, that when Jesus departed from this world after his first coming, he left his disciples radiant with joyful assurance of his coming again. Grace and hope should be our attitude when we think of the day of the Lord. His coming is so soon. Ladies, think of what this crowning act of redemption will mean for the Redeemer himself. When attended with heavenly glory, he prepares to descend to the very world that witnessed his suffering and sorrow and shame. What will it mean to him when the multitudes of the redeemed gather about him and at last he sees the travail of his soul and is satisfied? Is it not reasonable that there should be such a manifestation of the Redeemer to the world? Is it reasonable that the despised man of Nazareth should be the only view the world should have of him, who is to be the heir of all things? Is it likely that God would allow his son's retirement from the world in apparent defeat without any subsequent vindication? If the prophetic vision of the suffering servant had an actual personal fulfillment, surely the prophetic vision of the conquering king will also have a personal fulfillment. As this world was astonished at him when he came the first time because his visage was so marred 
more than any other man and his form more than the sons of man, so it will be astonished when he comes a second time. And the prophet's vision breaks upon its view. Who is this that comes from Edom with dyed garments? This is that glorious, the greatness of his strength. Isaiah 63.1. I love the way that commentator put it. Doesn't it make sense that Jesus would come back to the world and reveal his true strength, his true, his true power? But ladies, again, as we think of our glorious God, this return is not just for the world to see on display the glory and greatness of our God. Think of what it will mean for us, for the redeemed. There will be, of course, the happy reunion of all the saints when the dead are raised and the living are changed. For when the Lord descends from heaven with a shout, the dead will rise first. But, the, but as glorious as these things are, they are only preliminary steps to a higher and holier bliss. The climax of redemption will be manifested when the union of the church with her Lord in the marriage of the Lamb. For when the bridegroom shall come to claim his bride, then the church that Christ loved and purchased shall be presented to him a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The astonished world beholding her transformation shall cry, who is she? Think of what it will mean when after sharing in his humiliation in the midst of a scoffing and unbelieving world, the redeemed church is exalted to his side. And as the consort of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords stands, all rapture through and through in God's most holy sight, nothing less than this is the destiny that awaits the church of Jesus Christ. Ladies, we have a glorious hope of his grace at his second coming. Turn with me, if you will, please, to Joel. I had mentioned in the beginning that that term, that phrase, the day of the Lord, appears in that book more than any other. And I wanted to just focus in on chapter 2. We'll read through it as we close tonight, that our hearts would be ready for his return. So hopefully you're there by now. Joel chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. For it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains, a people come great and strong the like of whom has never been, nor there will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. Verse 3, a fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds so they run. With a noise like chariots over mountaintops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. 
They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. Verse 8, they do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish in brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Ladies, those first 11 verses paint us a picture of a prophecy that has a dual fulfillment. So Israel here is facing coming judgment, right? And maybe it's an army, maybe it's a famine, right? We hear a lot about these locusts in this book that have come in and just destroyed all the crops, all the vegetation, their resources. But it's also talking about the coming judgment that will take place during the Great Tribulation. So what should our response be? Is it to fear? Is it to locust-proof our houses and our gardens? No. We see there in verse 12 that the answer is to turn to the Lord with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Let's continue there in verse 13. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priest who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. And do not give your heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? If you notice, verse 1 began with the command, blow the trumpets. And it's repeated again in verse 15. Trumpets were very significant in Hebrew culture. A lot of times they would be used to call to war. But a lot of times they would also be used to call people together to assemble for a feast, for a celebration, or for prayer. And ladies, if you've studied the day of the Lord, you know that many New Testament writers assure us that it will come with the sound of a trumpet. And it's going to be for both. The Lord is going to wage his final war against the enemy, against evil, but he's also going to gather us up to himself. We'll be with him forever in his presence. But in the meantime, while we wait for that great trumpet of the rapture, we should gather ourselves together for sanctification. Notice how many 
um, commands are given, right? These, these verbs that are, we're called to action, to gather, to sanctify, to assemble, to gather, to let, right? We're told to call a sacred assembly, to consecrate a fast, to be intentional about our walk with the Lord. We don't have time to waste. We don't have time to waste. You have to be intentional about reading your Bible every day. You have to be intentional about prayer. You have to be intentional about these things because the days are short and his return is so near. We'll continue reading there in verse 18. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. Just real quick, allow yourself to be satisfied by the things that the Lord provides you. Don't go out into the world. Don't try to do it in your own strength or in your own timing. Those things will never fill you. Verse 20, but I will remove far from you the northern army, and I will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back towards the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beast of the field. For the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Verse 23, be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty, and again, there's the promise, and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel I am the Lord your God and there is no other my people shall never be put to shame and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your old men shall dream dreams your young men shall see visions, and also on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and I will show wonders in heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Ladies, what an amazing chapter. 
What amazing promises. What an amazing heart to have. Do you really believe that the day of the Lord is coming? That it can be at any moment? That it will be personal and glorious? That it is imminent? Well, it looks like we have some homework to do. We have some rending of our hearts. We have some returning. We have some consecrating and sanctifying to do of our hearts. David Guzik says, when we are right with God, we want the day of the Lord. We long for him to show his strength because we know that we abide in him. When we are not right with God, we dread the day of the Lord. Because when God shows himself strong, his strength may work against us. Oh, ladies, that we would be right with the Lord. As we await his return, continue to offer up to him your heart. His promise is that you will not be put to shame. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this study. That, Jesus, you are the God who is to come. So our prayer tonight is, even so, come. Lord Jesus, come. Lord, show us those areas in our life that we need to be more intentional. Those areas that maybe we're holding back. Lord, we give you our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. We want to love you and serve you with our all. Help us choose that one thing that is needful that one thing that will not be taken away from us as we spend time with you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you, ladies. God bless you.